president and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm Jeremy Siegel, Professor of Finance here at the Wharton School. My co-host is Jeremy Schwartz, who's joining us by telephone from New York, a director of research at, at Wisdom Tree. Please note that he's a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services, and I'm a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not a recommendation for any trading strategy, nor tied to an offer or sale of any investment product. And the views of our guests are not those of Wisdom Tree or any of its affiliates. We've got a very special guest in the first half of today's show. He's Alan Auerbach, the Robert D. Birch Professor of Economics and Law, as well as the director of the Birch Center for Tax Policy and Public Finance at the University of California at Berkeley. Alan's with us to discuss, well, border tax adjustments. We're going to even move a little further in taxes in general. Uh, He's been getting a lot of requests for interviews. It's really become a hot topic. We're lucky to have him. Um, he and Douglas Holtz-Eakin, who was head of the Congressional Budget Office for many years, was very, very great economist, um, and who is president of the American Action Forum, wrote a widely discussed paper on the tax adjustments back in the last fall. Um, Allen is also a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, principally taught at Harvard and at Penn um, Alan, when were you at Penn? I, what years? Remind me. I remember you were here. I was. Uh, hi, Jeremy. I, yeah. I was at Penn from 1983 to 1994. 1983 to 94. Well, oh, good. The weather's a little be- better there in Berkeley, isn't it? It is indeed. <laughs> okay. So I, I thought I thought we'd start out, um, Alan, uh, as I'm sure you're asked so many times. Give us in a few words to our listeners what this border adjustment tax is all about, and then we're going to get into some of the the nitty-gritty, which makes it good or maybe not so good. Sure. Well, first of all, the the border tax adjustment uh, has been uh, portrayed as a new exotic idea for the U.S., and for the U.S. it is. It's not for the world, because any country that has a value-added tax has border tax adjustments. And in a sense, that is part of the motivation for it in the U.S., that is, uh, there's a view that uh, we uh, suffer for not having that kind of tax in the U.S., and this is an attempt to, uh, to uh, correct that problem. A border tax adjustment uh, has also been confused uh, with tariffs, uh, uh, in, in part because of the language coming from the White House, uh, but it is distinct uh, because of the mechanism uh, uh, through which it works. A border tax adjustment uh, applied to the corporate or, or individual income tax, as it would be under the proposal currently being considered in the House of Representatives, would uh, put a tax on imports or equivalently for businesses, uh, eliminate the, their deductibility for imports. And uh, for exports, it would uh, have the opposite effect. It would be to give a credit for uh, exports 
or alternatively, one can think of it as simply uh, making export revenues uh, for businesses not taxable. Uh, now, uh, there are other pieces to the proposal to which the border adjustments are attached, but because uh, these are the uh, element that, that uh, this is the element that's been getting the most attention, let me just stay focused on the border adjustment. Uh, some uh, people interpret it, as I said, as, as being uh, some sort of a protectionist uh, trade measure uh, to try to cause our exports to surge and our imports to fall and, and give us a, a, a reduction in our trade deficit or a trade surplus. That, that isn't the aim, uh, and it clearly isn't the aim of countries that adopt value-added taxes, uh, which uh, are just viewed as consumption taxes. Uh, the point of the border adjustment is to shift the location of taxation from where things are produced uh, to where things they're to where things are purchased, as as is uh, generally the approach under consumption-based taxation, and uh, the logic of doing so uh, is to encourage U.S. companies to locate their production facilities and and also to encourage multinational companies that are currently moving their profits to low-tax countries to locate their profits in the United States. So it's, it's, it's aimed at reducing tax avoidance by multinational corporations and to encourage uh, companies to choose the U.S. as a location for their uh, uh, production rather than other countries if they're currently making decisions against the U.S. based on tax considerations. Okay. Uh, uh, Alan, when I read the research that you did with Doug Egan, uh, the role of border adjustments in, in international taxation, um, very good examples, very, very clear on, on what's happening. But um, a lot of times I read it a lot as let's try to avoid, and I know this is one of the goals, uh, of, of what's happening right now in firms inverting leaving the U.S., incorporating outside the U.S. People always talk about Ireland, which I guess has the lowest corporate tax in, in the OECD, uh, other tricks that are played to try to get revenue uh, not counted in the U.S. under the U.S. tax, which is the highest uh, in the OECD. But is if, if, if Trump and the Republicans lower the corporate tax rate now it may not go all the way down to the fifteen percent in, in Ireland, but you know twenty percent is is talked about. Um, would would that lower the incentive uh, or let's say the raison d'être of the border adjustment tax in the first place? Well, you're you're absolutely right. There are other approaches that are less comprehensive or sweeping uh, that would move in the same direction. The uh, the, the, the basic problems we have of discouraging production in the U.S., encouraging uh, companies to, to shift profits to other countries, encouraging companies to invert, relate to two factors. One is the, uh, the fact that the U.S. has a tax on the offshore profits of companies, um, <clears throat> which other countries do, which is one of the things that's been leading to the inversions. Uh, and the other is the fact that the U.S. has a 35% tax rate, which is so much higher <clears throat> than the, the tax rates of other countries. Uh, if you lower the U.S. tax rate a lot, I mean, if you lowered it to Ireland's 12.5%, then uh, we wouldn't have to worry about the shifting of profits to Ireland. There would still be problems even then, because a lot of um, multinationals managed to avoid taxation at all on their profits through very complicated 
uh, transactions that don't just involve Ireland but involves various inconsistencies among countries. But you're absolutely right. Lowering the corporate tax rate uh, would uh, would solve a lot, address a lot of these problems, if not completely solving them. Uh, and, and indeed, that was the approach taken uh, by uh, the Republicans a few years ago in the House of Representatives when when Dave Camp was the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Well, it didn't go anywhere. And one of the reasons it didn't go anywhere was that the uh, if one does the calculation of how much if one is trying to keep revenue up and tax revenue up and needs to come up with revenue sources to uh, reduce corporate tax rates, it's hard to do that within the business sector. And uh, uh, and so in the end, what they were able to accomplish in their proposal was relatively modest, and I, I think it just didn't light very many fires in Washington. One of the, from a political perspective, leaving aside the economic rationale, one of the advantages of the border adjustments is that because the U.S. is running a trade deficit over the foreseeable future, the revenue associated, pickup associated with border adjustments is quite large, estimated by one nonpartisan organization in Washington as being about $1.2 trillion over the next 10 years. That's of course, some people might not consider that a plus uh, for go- for the government to get even more tax revenue. But well, exactly, I do understand there is a a, a deficit <laughs> that well, we have no, today. I, I think the I think the logic in in this narrower sense is that uh, to the extent that one is trying to say reduce the corporate tax rate uh, or introduce other incentives which cost government the government revenue, coming up with a revenue source like this as part of the reform really helps make it go. And I think that is definitely one, leaving leaving the logic of the approach aside is one of the things that's driving it forward. And, and it would actually allow you to lower the corporate tax rate, right. and 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 not and, and sort of offset that one point two trillion. Uh, right. let, let 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 me let me uh, uh, go to another important issue, um, and that is the question or the hypothesis that. Um, well, let me state the problem first and then what the hypothesis is. The problem, of course, that a lot of people say, oh, my God, that's going to hurt all the corporations like Walmart and Home Depot and all those that import most of their goods from from abroad because, you know, they they won't be able to deduct from corporate taxes like a, a 20 percent or 25 percent tax. And it's going to be a total bonanza to all the exporters, uh, you know, who uh, – uh, will not pay a dime of tax on all their revenue, whether it's profit or not, from their exports. Now, the answer that you and many other give, oh, uh, the exchange rate will change to offset that uh, price disadvantage. Um, now, I think that that is completely right in a very simple model of trade. I myself have a hard time buying it in the complex world where we have uh, you know trillions of dollars of capital uh, transfers and, and sales being made today. Um, tell me whether uh, you try to c- convince me there'll be a one-to-one offset, Alan. Sure. Uh, well, you're right. This this is a key question and. I, you know, I certainly have sympathy with uh, people uh, uh, from industries that would be affected if there isn't an exchange-rated uh, uh, appreciation, um, because they, you know, they they can base their views on their own experience. No matter how much they hear 
uh, predictions of exchange rate appreciation, if, if it hasn't happened yet, they, they're, uh, they've reserved judgment. Uh, the argument is that, and first of all, your, your point is absolutely correct. If one thinks about what determines exchange rates, it's not simply trade or even predominantly trade. The capital flows among countries uh, have a big impact. That's one of the reasons why the dollar appreciated uh, in the last uh, uh, period of, of 2016. It didn't really have anything to do with big changes in international trade. You know, all it takes is uh, a, 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 a greater uncertainty around the world or an increase in uh, U.S. Uh, interest rates uh, uh, to cause the dollar to go up. And that doesn't really have anything to do with trade. That said, uh, the prediction that border adjustments will affect the dollar exchange rate uh, is really just one that's saying uh, if capital markets themselves are doing whatever they're doing uh, to influence the dollar, and that doesn't change with the introduction of border adjustments, then the, uh, the logic of the economic analysis is that the border adjustments should lead to an offsetting uh, movement of the dollar and appreciation of the dollar. Now, uh, there, are, there are, one can come up with many, many uh, complications, some of which uh, point to an even stronger dollar appreciation, some of which point to a somewhat lower dollar appreciation. Uh, in all, as I've considered these arguments, and I've certainly had an, a lot of op- opportunity to do so because I've spoken to many people about this and who've raised many of the, uh, of the issues that one should consider, I'm still convinced that there'll be a substantial dollar appreciation in a neighborhood of, of a full offset to the border adjustment. Let's assume, Alan, let's assume there is. Now, what, what about well, the international holdings of re- yeah. reserves? I mean, uh, you know, everyone who is fortunate to have their, all their reserves in dollars, whoopee. Uh, yeah. Everyone who has all their reserves in yeah. in euros is down the tube. That Well, you're, you're <laughs> right. It's not just an issue of reserves. It's an issue of holdings uh, by people in the U.S. of, of assets, foreign assets in foreign currency. Glo- yes. that, is, that is a logical consequence of moving to a consumption-based taxation. Uh, let me give you a, a, an analogy. If uh, the U.S. adopted a national sales tax of 20% uh, rather than uh, the, the tax that's under consideration. Or a VAT uh, like that. Uh, or a VAT. Yeah. The ability of people to... Uh, use their uh, wealth, whether in the U.S. or offshore, uh, to finance consumption purchases would be reduced. Their purchasing power would be reduced by the tax. And that is effectively what's happening uh, to the offshore holdings of Americans uh, that are uh, uh, in foreign currency as a result of the dollar appreciation. It really is uh, a mechanism through which they are being taxed on their consumption of those assets. Now, you may say that's not something you want to do, and, and if, if so, that, that would uh, uh, lead you against uh, wanting to impose a consumption tax. But it is, it is a, a part of the overall uh, reform uh, and, and definitely should be recognized as being present. Well, let's go to that example. If we're going to have a 20%, let's say, VAT or consumption tax, uh, you know, I would expect a 20% drop in the income tax. I wouldn't necessarily be worse off, would I? Well, uh, well, uh, I mean, I mean, it obviously depends on the distribution of the sure. income tax versus consumption. But on the average American would not be worse off. Well, here's a case where I think you know the average person who holds foreign assets, net, you know, you're right. Around the world, it aggregates, but there's going to be so heavily concentrated shifts in wealth. But keep in mind that along with the uh, border adjustment and the effect on the value of uh, assets held in abroad. 
uh, is a reduction in the corporate tax rate to 20 percent, uh, which is going to increase the profitability of many investments in the U.S. Uh, so, uh, yes, depending on what investment positions an individual has, uh, they, they might, there might be losses, but there also might be gains. There are going to be a lot of individuals uh, gaining uh, as a result of increased profitability of investment operations in the U.S. It, it, is, it, it is a concern and a consideration whenever one adopts a major tax change or considers adopting a major tax change like this, that there are going to be winners and losers. If you have a much more modest change, uh, you're going to have uh, the benefits are going to be smaller and the disruptions are also going to be smaller. Yes, that thing. Uh, Alan, let me just uh, remind everyone we're this, uh, we're listening that are that are listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111, and I'm finance professor Jeremy Siegel. I'm joined by phone for, by my co-host Jeremy Schwartz. We're talking this half hour with Berkeley economics professor. Alan Auerbach about uh, border adjustments and corporate taxation. Uh, we've just uh, kind of reviewed the question. Uh, he, he thinks that there would be, if we went to this system, a substantial uh, dollar appreciation. Um, I'm worried that that could cause substantial uh, uh, distribution effects. Uh, last Early last year, just about this time last year, when when commodity prices really collapsed, uh, emerging markets were they went into a bear market. The equity funds there was a tremendous amount of worry about the uh, fact that emerging markets, I believe, have eighty to ninety and maybe even more as a percentage of their debt in dollars. Wow! If I think about suddenly raising their debt burden by twenty percent. Uh, that might be crushing, uh, and uh, actually uh, not uh, able to to finance that from those countries. What do you think, Alan? I, I think that is an issue. That 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 is an important issue to raise. Uh, the uh, one of the th- one of the general issues that comes up when one is thinking about uh, th- uh, this point, as well as thinking about the previous point we were discussing about. Wealth effects associated with uh, changes in border adjustments. Uh, one one thought that comes up is uh, how will the transition to this new system occur? We are talking as if uh, uh, we wake up tomorrow and we're under living under the new system, and uh, that would cause a very very sharp appreciation of the dollar, and it would happen very quickly. Of course, it will happen very quickly whenever there's a expectation that it's going to be phased in. Uh, various people have thought about. Uh, uh, and I think there is current thinking going on about transition provisions uh, to make the process more gradual. Uh, the, the truth is that uh, this proposal, when it was put out in June by the House of Representatives, uh, was uh, more of an aspirational document. You know, it was during the middle of an election season. Nobody really thought there was going to be much happening in the short run about uh, tax reform. It was more a, a marker for the future. And the future came a lot faster than people were anticipating because of the election of President Trump. And, and faster than you were anticipating. I, I'm sure that last summer you didn't think you were going to be in such demand as no, you I are. Mean, I, was, <laughs> I was still talking about it as an academic uh, issue. It's something I've been working on and interested in for several years. But I, I, you know, as you know, academics sometimes can have a pretty long horizon about these issues. And I've been thinking about this as something for the future. 
and still think it's where we're likely to end up, even if we don't end up there this well, year. I think but there's all some. Sudden, all of a sudden, it became something happening at a great pace, uh, and and that you know, that in itself uh, it can be quite disconcerting because one has to sort of think through all the very complicated effects that uh, such a change could have. I, I think it did hit the markets really uh, too suddenly without a without a phase. And listen, I don't want to ignore Jeremy on the phone from New York. Jeremy, do you have any question you'd like to ask Alan? Yeah, well, thank Alan. Thanks first. Thanks for for being here with us, and it's uh, it's great to get to chat with you. I mean, it's, we've 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 covered this issue pretty in depthly, but one on on just sort of maybe to try to summarize this discussion, what do you think are the current odds that this type of proposal goes through, and how are you getting involved with the administration? Are you consulting them in, in this capacity, and and so how do you read those those odds and in, in your involvement there? Mm-hmm. Well, the answer to my, the first question is, um, I, you know, anyth- anything I say about probabilities should be taken with uh, very large grains of salt. Also, one-time uh, events are pretty hard to uh, <laughs> talk about in probabilistic terms, right? right. They either I, happen or they don't. I, I think there, there is uh, clear support for this measure in the House of Representatives. There's already at least one Republican senator who's come out against it, uh, who mu- whose, whose opposition might have been predicted. Uh, the, the White House is a big question mark because there have been various statements that seem to be inconsistent about their views of it. Uh, one can see a lot of uh, things happening along the way uh, over the course of this calendar year that will kill this proposal, uh, either replacing it with a more traditional Republican approach or quite possibly replacing it with nothing or something very small like a repeat of the repatriation tax holiday that we had in 2004. I, I think it's uh, it, it would be, be we would all be better served. I think if it, if the process were more gradual, because even if we do go ahead with this, it would be nice to feel that we've got all the all the uh, uh, the issues worked out. Um, and I, I really don't know what the exact timetable is. Uh, they're also um, sequencing this after their uh, completion of dealing with the Affordable Care Act, and that seems to be proving to be a much more complicated process than, than they had thought it would Alan, be. Alan, following up on, on Jeremy, are you working with the Trump administration now um, on, on, on this, or are you still sort of from afar as an academic? Uh, I, I am still, I'm not, uh, I, I'm, so I guess I would say I'm somewhere in between. I'm definitely having more conversations with people connected to the policy process uh, than I would have in a normal year as an academic, uh, but I am not directly working with either with the people in the House of Representatives or people uh, in the White House on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've, I've had conversa- many conversations with many people who are close to the policy process. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, that, and, 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 and you think from the perspective of what Trump says he's trying to do, which is get people to stay focused on U.S. manufacturing, trying to get people not to go overseas for corporate headquarters. Now, maybe, as Professor Siegel is saying, just lowering the corporate tax rate gets people to stay here, but it does seem positioned politically towards what he's trying to accomplish, although very complex in all these yes. dynamics here. Yes, it's, it's, I think it would be hard to come up with a proposal that would, that would uh, offer a stronger tax incentive to uh, locate production activities in the U.S. than this one. And the real issue is whether the uh, uh, sort of uh, size of the change from the current system uh, is too much of a barrier to overcome. I want just one thing about complexity. 
the president said it was too, this, at one point said uh, yeah. this kind of proposal was too complex. Other people have said it's complex. It is certainly complex to think through the implications of various changes. It, it, I, it is worth saying that the, the, the plan itself, not the transition to the plan, but the plan itself is actually very simple. It's much simpler than the current corporate tax system. It's much easier to enforce than the current corporate tax system. Uh, it's based on cash flow and not income, and that's a simpler concept to measure. It, it's based only on domestic transactions. It ignores transactions that occur in foreign countries. It, occur, it ignores transactions that occur across the U.S. border. So it, in itself, it's a very simple tax system, but, but that's not the it, Let me ask you, would it... Would it uh, how about travelers who come here and buy? I mean, is that would they be subject to? Any? It would be. It would be. Uh, again, this hasn't been specified, but I would imagine it would work the same way it works under value-added taxes in Europe. You stay in a hotel in Europe. You pay the tax. You buy something for export. You can get a rebate on the tax. And I imagine that's what that will be the case uh, for these for these operations for this tax as well. Let, let's let's move to. Some of the other aspects of the uh, Republican plan uh, that have been discussed widely. How do you stand on uh, the immediate expensing of capital equipment and often linked with that uh, the restriction or elimination of the deduction of uh, interest uh, payments uh, for such purposes, for tax uh, purposes? Well, let let me... uh uh, I, I, in general, I'm in favor of it. But let me explain what the rationale is for these two provisions and for tying them together. We currently have an income tax uh, at the business level for equity investment, but we don't for uh, for uh, a debt financed investment because we have a deduction that offsets the the, uh, the income tax to the extent that the funds are borrowed and an interest deduction is is uh, gotten. Uh, and so there's a on, uh, not a level playing field between debt and equity. Yes. And this periodically surfaces as a concern, and it certainly surfaces as a concern during the global financial crisis. There was a concern there, of course, not necessarily that non-financial companies, but that there was a, sort of too much, too much of an incentive for borrowing in the economy and that that could lead to instability. I think the shift toward a more level playing field between uh, debt and equity is, is, uh, is the aim of getting rid of the interest deduction. Now, of course, if you just got rid of the interest deduction, you'd be raising the cost of capital for companies quite substantially, um, and that would not encourage investment. And so uh, going to immediate expensing of investment uh, at the same time uh, uh, counteracts that, uh, that concern. Would, would it be, if they did it, would it just be for new investment? Would old investment financed by bonds, would that part still be allowed to be? I mean, That, I, that is a question that ha- I don't know that that's been addressed. Uh, you have to think about uh, not just the treatment of purchases of existing assets, but how the sale of those assets would be treated. One logical way of doing it would be to allow expensing of, of uh, existing uh, assets uh, upon purchase, but at the same time tax the sale of those uh, by the current owners. An alternative would be to not tax the sale by current owners and not allow a, a deduction uh, those are different ways of coming to a similar uh, outcome, and I'm not sure which approach they're going to take. They, they, they ought to take one of those two rather than some sort of inconsistent treatment of, say, taxing the sale but not allowing a deduction. Going back on that level uh, playing field, is an alternative to allow corporations to deduct dividends paid? 
That huh. would certainly be an alternative. So one, one approach uh, to uh, getting to a level playing field, it, rather than denying the interest deduction and going to expensing, would be to keep an income tax uh, and depreciation and so forth and keep the interest deduction, uh, but then introduce a, uh, either an allowance for corporate equity. And there are different ways of doing it. And one of it could be through a credit against um, uh, dividend taxes or some other form of uh, there, there are different models uh, all come to roughly the same I approach of, of, uh, of reducing the cost either at the business level or at the individual level for dividends paid. And I think that if they did that, maybe we'd reduce a lot of those corporate buybacks of shares, which are really tax-favored under sure. current legislation, sure. and turn it into dividends, which I think you know many of us uh, – are in favor of. I mean, as you know, politically, buybacks have not been the world's most popular thing, although they are an efficient way of getting, uh, you know, uh, tax, not quite free, but nearly free capital back to the investor. Yes, indeed, that's been a puzzle over the years why more companies don't uh, don't use buybacks in lieu of dividends. I think that one of the reasons is that really, in a world where interest rates are so so low that people really are beginning to hunt out dividend-paying stocks, and in a way they're willing to take whatever tax hit they're going to do because I think that they might actually be uh, attractive, or at least attractive going forward. Um, but, uh, yeah, we definitely need to put those uh, two on, on, on a level uh, playing field. Uh, we only have a little bit more than a minute left, so... Um, uh, you know, let me just just end up. You really th- uh, got us to thinking: Should we go to a value-added tax or a consumption tax and just drop all this crazy tax on capital to really encourage capital investment? I mean, this is this has often been said as sort of a stealth VAT tax, value-added tax. Uh, how do you feel about that? Certainly, some people who talk about this talk freely about it as. A uh, very closely related to a VAT. It really is a VAT, except for a deduction for wages and salaries paid by businesses. And you could even imagine implementing a, a system very much like this in two pieces: introducing a VAT and at the same time uh, giving businesses, say, a credit against wage and salary payments. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons that hasn't been done is be- because the uh, acronym VAT seems to cause a, great a lot of problems. On the, we do, US. we do have to end it. We're getting quite to the end. Thanks for expanding our minds on this tax issue from what we had before, Alan. Uh, and uh, uh, we will um, maybe get a chance in a few months later to revisit some of these things under a, a really uh, uh, explicit, hard proposal. Very good. Thank nice you. Talking to you. Please stay tuned, everyone. After the break, we'll be talking with Jay Pulaski, founder and principal of Pulaski Global Strategies, a global investment advisory boutique based in New York City. I'm Jeremy Siegel, and you're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and we've got this half hour Jay Pulaski coming up in just a few minutes. I'm going to check in with Professor Siegel here, though, to give us some, some brief market commentary. Uh, the first part of the show, we had a discussion we taped early in the week with Alan Auerbach on the board adjustment tax. Uh, I want to get Professor Siegel's just sort of summary recap of that discussion. But before, Professor, just any, any updated thoughts? Current markets, you know, we still hanging in oh, there. Yeah. Pretty, pretty robust markets. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things going on. It's, it's the same theme that we've talked about now for two or three months. If President 
Trump follows the Republican agenda of lower taxes, lower uh, regulation, um, the market's going up. There's no question about it. If uh, he switches to following the Trump-only agenda of uh, tr- trade wars and currency wars and uh, you know over protectionism, the market is going to take a, a, a dive. Uh, today, you know, he, I mean, this week he went and met with uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada. You said there's very little things we have to do with Canada, and that's very, you know, that's the other part of NAFTA. Uh, so he has no seemingly uh, problems with Canada. That was taken very favorably by the markets. Uh, again, so you know, as long as we get into that mode, I think the, the market can still go up if we see him shifting the other mode that provokes some sort of trade war. And I do think that's the less likely outcome, but it can't certainly be. Uh, said to be zero, you know, you'll see a huge sell-off. So, you know, the market is <laughs> is negotiating that to find out what what the real direction is. Um, the other big development was the the hotter than expected inflation numbers, both from producer prices and from consumer prices. And this has really gotten March, the March fifteenth uh, FOMC meeting, uh, in play again. Pretty much it had been taken out. People said it's not going to be uh, the, the second, uh, first increase of the year won't be until the May meeting or the June meeting. But now probability has gone up uh, in, in March. Uh, let, me, let me mention where I stand uh, on this. Um, I pre- I'd said beforehand I thought March was pretty much out of play, especially with the last employment report, which showed so little wage uh, uh, Growth and inflationary trends, and and uh, an increase in the uh, participation rate, uh, a tick up in unemployment. I thought that that was very very positive. I think what is now what you should look at. It's very interesting. So the March meeting is on on March fifteenth. On March tenth, we have the February employment report, and that's going to be extremely important. Is, is Are we going to see lower unemployment rate? Are we going to see a drop in the participation rate? Are we going to see wages bounce back from a, a very low number uh, that we saw for, for January? If that's the case, wow, you will, you'll see a, a jump in all those uh, forward rates going um, uh, you know, uh, in the markets. Uh, interestingly enough, then on the 14th and the, the morning of the 15th, so the morning of the FOMC, you will see another reading on the producer price index and the consumer. Will it be as hot as it was uh, earlier this week? So right now, I'm going to say what's, let's, that, those five days are going to be so intense hmm. in terms of following, and there's going to be an awful lot of... Uh, of uh, perhaps volatility in the market right around that time because a March move now after basically being ruled out for so long um, really would put the Fed on target for uh, three more moves March, June, September, and December, perhaps even four. Uh, And uh, that will shoot up interest rates, and that may cause a pause in this equity rally. Yeah, and you know, what, one of the interesting things on this trade, you know, you said the bad Trump, the trade wars. I mean, uh, that first part of the conversation this week, you know, a lot of people have interpreted this border adjustment tax as, if you think about, you know, all, how all these countries might respond to us changing tax policies, will they respond? Will they interpret a border adjustment tax here in the U.S. and try to react? Um, we had that discussion with Auerbach. Um, he says it's just like a VAT. It's not protectionist. 
um, you know, he, he makes a case, you know, that this that the dollar will offset some of the imports. Yeah, well, that's the that's the case that I, as you know, and I was we were talking about. I was so skeptical about yeah. that that the dollar is going to make a total adjustment to offset the comparative advantage that the United States gains uh, from from adjustment. So don't worry. Uh, it, that that in my line is just not realistic. It's a pure trade model. It doesn't have capital. Capital is so important in terms of determining uh, the exchange rate. In fact, as you know, all the models we teach our students are, uh, you know, the trade flows are good in the very long run, but it is the capital flows that totally dominate all short and immediate, intermediate runs of, of the currency. It would be devastating. A 20% appreciation of the dollar will throw the world markets in, into chaos. Uh, it, you know, and, and, and what's also important, and, and I think Alan admitted it when we talked to him, was that, you know, he wrote that paper back when, uh, you know, before the election, when there was no real hope of lowering the corporate tax. Uh, now we got real hope of moving down the corporate tax. We don't have to worry about, if it happens, 20% is the number that's talked about. We don't have to worry about firms then fleeing to Ireland. Uh, you know, and, t- and these tax havens anymore. Uh, especially if we lower regulation, uh, it'll be attractive to manufacture here. And that is the. I think we just uh, we just lost the professor, but uh, it's a very interesting discussion with our back earlier in the week, and uh, we'll be interested to see how that that plays out. Well, I'm, I'm going to turn over the conversation now to to Jay Pulaski, who's the founder uh, and principal Pulaski Global Strategies. They're a global investment advisory boutique based in New York City. Uh, Jay, welcome to our program. Thanks, Jeremy. Happy to be here. Uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about your background. Um, you know, you serve institutional clients. You have clients who range from ETF strategists, hedge funds, RIAs, endowments. Uh, you have a background in um, research. You looked at, at looked at from your bio. You worked at Morgan Stanley on their global allocation team. Maybe give a little bit to our listeners, just a little bit more uh, what you focus on. Uh, people who want to follow Pulaski Global Strategies. Great. Thanks, Jeremy. And I appreciate that opportunity. Well, I would say the firm, which has been in place now for six years, uh, we've developed an analytical framework we call the Global Risk Nexus, which really analyzes the interplay between global economics, politics, policy, and markets. And we do that in order to provide independent uh, and original, actionable, multi-asset investment advice across both uh, active and passive as well as the public-private uh, divides, typically working at the portfolio strategy and asset allocation level. And I would say there are really three distinguishing features uh, of our effort. The first would be uh, my own 30-plus uh, years of global multi-asset investment experience uh, that I've achieved in over 50 countries, and includes, as you noted, uh, Jeremy, both uh, work at the global emerging markets back in the late 80s and early 90s, as well as working and introducing, actually, uh, the global asset allocation strategy product at Morgan Stanley, where I uh, was co-chair of the investment committee and ranked uh, number one in institutional investor for global asset allocation. The second uh, thing that I would say really differentiates us is our deep understanding of the ETF space. And I know this is near and dear to your own heart. Uh, but I have invested personally in managing my own capital for the past 15 years using almost exclusively ETFs. And then, as, we, as you noted, uh, we have advised uh, ETF strategists pretty much from the onset 
of our firm. So I think we know the ETF space uh, from both a very practical investment uh, decision-making uh, stance as well as uh, advising those who have that job uh, today. And then third, and finally, I'd say in terms of distinguishing features, is that uh, we eat our own cooking, namely that uh, I invest uh, my own capital, as I mentioned, and therefore pretty much everything that you hear from me or read from me, uh, I will know intimately as uh, someone who has invested personally, as opposed to just simply a paper portfolio or uh, someone writing about uh, ideas that uh, they think are interesting. At Pulaski Global Strategies, you can rest assured that any advice we give is advice that we are taking ourselves. Well, I, I love that model, Jay, and I, so I think that that's very good. I mean, I, I I try to myself when I write, you know, content for 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 Wisdom Tree. I, I try to think very much like, what am I doing personally? What do I think? You know, just represents exactly what I believe. So I, I think that's exactly you know spot on type of approach there. So maybe top start. You know, given that background, so you're managing your own ETF portfolio. We're not going to talk about specific ETFs. We we can't do that on the program. But mm-hmm. let's talk about top line views. I mean, how how just give us you know from the, the the broadest you know global macro perspective, you know maybe what you would say is your your typical allocation, and then how you would say today might vary from that. Uh, well, I guess I would start off uh, by saying, uh, Jeremy, that I think uh, the the big issue in the markets today is uh, are we moving away from deflation to inflation? I think that's a that's a huge question mark. Uh, are we moving from a low growth, kind of low rate, low return environment to a higher growth, higher interest rates, higher inflation, and then potentially higher uh, financial market returns? And I think that's the, the, the big overarching question. I, I personally think it's too early to make the case that, uh, that we're moving dramatically out of the low growth, low interest rate, low inflation, and fairly uh, modest financial asset returns. Uh, and, and and so moving from that kind of very big picture to uh, kind of more more current picture, I think I'm focused a lot of my attention on kind of the interplay here between uh, politics and policy as it applies not only to the United States, where clearly there's a lot to talk about, as you just touched on earlier with Professor Siegel and your earlier guest, but also obviously in Europe with the whole question of Brexit and what that means for the European Union. And then, of course, uh, Asia itself uh, and how uh, China is moving to increase its influence within the broader Asian context. And so I think this question of, you know, can we shift from monetary policy to to a, kind of what I call a joint venture fiscal monetary policy is a very important question. And then can we move away from the current kind of uh, stagnating globalization process, as I would call it, to uh, a more revitalized uh, trade process, which I call uh, the tripolar world, which really argues that essentially we're moving from kind of a global uh, focus on trade and capital flows to a much more regional focus, uh, where I think the world is kind of breaking into three main regions, uh, the Americas, Europe, and Asia, where each region has its uh, a growing capacity to do three different things. One is self-financed through growing wealth pools. Second is self-produced through advanced manufacturing. And third is self-consumed through the rise of urbanization and, of course, e-commerce. And so I think the whole thrust of the debate 
around globalization here in the United States, but also more broadly, is kind of somewhat miscast. And so I think there's actually an opportunity for investors to kind of take the other side of the of the current kind of trade, almost hysteria that's out there in terms of uh, uh, what is President Trump going to do yep. and you know, he's going to break up NAFTA and the European Union is going to disintegrate and China is very much at risk if the U.S. Co- labels it a currency manipulator. I think all those things are open to question. Yeah, let's let's drill into this. We talk a lot about the U.S. We, we sort of focus on the U.S. a, a bit. I, I want to drill into your two other regions there. Let, maybe let's start with Europe because I think you have some different views on, on what's happening in Europe than so some standard people. A lot of people are worried about... Uh, we had the Brexit last year. People are worried that the EU, you've got these these elections in France and Netherlands coming up, Germany later in, in 2017, uh, and people worry about anti-EU backlash. Um, but you like parts of Europe. So let, let's talk about where you think the market sentiment is, is, is and then what, what, what makes you uh, more optimistic there. Excellent, Jeremy. Yeah, I think that's absolutely one of the key questions. And, and look, my point of view is simple. Uh, it, it's that Brexit and President Trump are not going to lead Europe to greater disintegration. It's going to lead Europe to further integration. And think of what occurs, for example, when you stare into the abyss, you know, and you contemplate a future that you've never had to expect. And I think this is what Europe is doing kind of collectively. They're having to contemplate a future really without the U.S. joined to the hip, which is something they've never really had to think about, at least not since uh, post-World War II. And I think that really concentrates the mind. And I think what you're starting to see, and we'll see more of, is actually Europe that is focused on integrating more deeply. So first off, I would say that the case for investing in Europe it begins with this thesis, that the, that the sentiment is overly negative, that I believe we are past uh, peak bearishness, And I would highlight that 2016 saw record outflows from European equity mutual funds. So you've already had record outflows. Secondly, the European economy is growing faster than that of the United States. Credit growth is expanding. Interest rates are rising. Inflation is maybe starting to pick up a little bit, which is a good thing, given that we were worried about deflation a year ago. Third, you have a financial market, an equity market, that is cheap, very cheap relative to the United States, completely underowned and very unloved, yet is generating earnings growth. Q4 earnings are just coming through, and Europe right at the moment is generating earnings growth that is double that of the United States. And so I think Europe is a very interesting opportunity. There definitely are going to be bumps in the road with the politics, as you pointed out, the elections over the next couple of months. But I think uh, Europe is a very interesting opportunity. And I think particularly the banks, the European banks, are the best way to play because they're the least loved. But yet there is a lot of action taking place to kind of put them more uh, together in terms of uh, dealing with their non-performing loans. And then, as I mentioned, credit growth is expanding. Interest rates are rising. Both of those things are very bullish for the banks. Banks are cheap in part because Europe still has, in, in the very short end of their yield curve, negative interest rates. As they move away from that, that allows the banks opportunity to make money, much as is the case here in the United States. And therefore, uh, I think you have an opportunity in the European banks uh, to do even better 
than you do uh, in the U.S. banks. We're talking with Jay Pulaski of Pulaski Global Strategies. Uh, interesting global market strategist views here, just outlining the case for European banks. Um, interesting. I mean, a lot of people do worry, you know, that we took our, our medicine in the U.S., deleveraged uh, much quicker than, say, European banks. Do you do you see they having to raise more capital? Do you, do you feel like that's, that cycle sort of past themselves. People all talk about the huge non-performing loans, like a trillion dollars of non-performing loans that, that they need to get rid of. I mean, what, what are you, how does that play into the, the thesis there? Yeah, no, I think that, that's definitely true. Both the idea that Europe lagged uh, the U.S. in terms of the adjustment process, as well as the point that there's a very large segment of non-performing loans that still remain on the books. Uh, I would say that, though, that that is very well known. Right. There, there's no investor on the planet, I don't think, who's not aware of those facts. And, uh, and I think, uh, secondly, that, that that issue is being dealt with. And the, the real, real place where it's uh, most uh, visible today, of course, is in Italy and the Italian banks and what's going on there. But if, you, you know, if you're reading the papers or following the news, you, you're reading about uh, multiple large transactions where finally the banks are willing to sell the non-performing loans. And there are buyers out there, as you well know, Jeremy. There's been a lot of money raised to buy bad debts in, in Europe. And they haven't really been able to put the money to work because the banks weren't willing to sell at a certain price point. Uh, now, as the economy recovers, as credit growth expands, as interest rates rise, that, that gap between what the banks were willing to sell the non-performing loans at and what the buyer base is willing to buy at has narrowed considerably. So transactions are taking place. And I would argue that you want to buy the banks at the front of that process, mm. not at the back of it. Very good. So let, let, maybe let's let's transition a little bit to Asia. Um, so, you know, the you know, you talked about this transition from monetary policy to fiscal policy, this tripolar world. And you could say, you know, perhaps, you know, Europe, that's not something Europe has actually done. But Asia, we've definitely seen a pivot towards fiscal policy in Japan and China. Uh, there's a deep interplay. We have about maybe four or five minutes, a little bit less than four minutes left. Talk a little bit about your your Asia view. Okay, well, I'm bullish on Asia. I'm particularly bullish on Japan. Uh, I would make the case very quickly. Uh, in Japan, you have uh, solid growth for Japan, which is not you know very rapid, but solid growth. You have the Bank of Japan, which is capping interest rates at close to zero. Uh, that should lead for further weakness in the yen, right, as U.S. rates rise and the Japan rates are capped. The gap between the two should lead to a weaker currency. Earnings growth in Japan, Jeremy, is almost triple that of the United States. Uh, Q4 uh, in Japan, uh, earnings growth was roughly 13 to 15% versus 5% in the U.S. Forecast earning growth in the year ahead is 25%. So you have a situation where Japan uh, corporates are restructuring, corporate governance is really becoming a big focal point, and there's a very active private equity effort to help the Japanese companies kind of restructure and become much more uh, globally competitive. If inflation succeeds in, in taking root in Japan, and I think that will happen, I think 2017 is the year Japan will return to inflation, you'll see a significant shift in domestic assets out of fixed income into equities. Stocks will go higher. I think hedged Japanese equities are very, very attractive. And then finally, in China, I think uh, China is also uh, quite interesting. Uh, think about China as a market where it's still 50% off its highs. Uh, the government has really taken 
the property market off the table for investors, and therefore all the capital that's building up in China that can't get out because they've locked down the capital uh, markets has to go somewhere. I think it's going to go into stocks. And while people feel like like the United States has all the cards to play in a trade war with uh, China, I think that is not correct at all. And I think you, there's very good chance that if we label China a currency manipulator, they will let the currency go, and you could have a Brexit-type situation in China where stocks would rally dramatically, much as happened in the UK after Brexit, which was surprising and confusing to everyone. Yeah, no, I think we're on the same page on a lot of these issues. Uh, last week on our podcast and show, we had Jesper Kohl, our Japan CEO, uh, mm-hmm. talking a lot about similar themes there. Uh, quickly, in our final minute here uh, on on China, any concerns? A lot of people, you know, th- worry. Just like we talked about European banks, people worry about Chinese banks over leverage. Are there going to be a crisis? Do you have any view on Chinese banks, or do you do you think it's more about Chinese consumer, or what's your thought there? Well, I was in China in December, and before that I was in China a year or so ago. And, and look, the, the point about China is that it's still a very internal system. They have an awful lot of levers that they can pull. It's not particularly open, particularly the financial system is not particularly open to the rest of the world. There's not a huge currency mismatch in terms of the debt. The debt is uh, local currency debt owed by owed to local institutions. So they, they would be able to deal with that issue. And I think at least for 2017, in the run-up to the uh, fall party Congress, uh, the focus in China is on stability. I think the worry about debt is valid, but I think it's probably a a worry for uh, 2019-2020 as opposed to 2017. Well, Jay Pulaski of Pulaski Global Strategies, we got to wrap it up here. Thank you so much. We'll have you back. Uh, You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor Alan Auerbach of Berkeley, Jay Pulaski of Pulaski Global Strategies. Thank our producer, Patty McMahon, and our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.